I believe this is actually my first time uh, preaching here. Uh, and it's been probably about a year since I've actually preached a lesson, so hopefully uh, this doesn't go too poorly. Um, I wonder sometimes, though, how much we read an Old Testament prophecy and really think about it. Um, the passage we're going to talk about in just a minute, um, but we're, I'm not going to reveal the secret yet. Uh, I heard it, and I, it was particularly moving to me. Um, I it felt like I was being punched in the gut. You know, it's just the beauty, the wonder, and the grace that was kind of up, you know, held up and bound up in this promise. And the reason why I asked Jacob to read Isaiah 25 is I think it's a good primer for the prophecy we're about to read. Um, it's kind of interesting to me, this theme of prophecy in the Old Testament and how it unfolds. Um, the time in which the most prophets were living was the time in which Israel was in the most distress, was when there was the most evil, was when there was the most wickedness and pain and sadness and threats, foreign and domestic. And it's kind of in that backdrop that Isaiah wrote this prophecy that there's going to be a day, a day on the mountain of the Lord when he's going to gather all of his people for a feast and he's going to take away that veil that's been over everybody and unite everybody. And it's interesting too, this, this image of this single day when all people are, when, when people are going to be able to enjoy this promise. And when you really read the Old Testament, it's full, it's replete with prophecies about this coming day. And it's interesting to me, especially in the book of Isaiah, um, that happened, um, you know, kind of in the shadow of the, of the looming exile, um, that he looked forward, almost looked beyond the exile, to say that there's coming a day in the future, far and remote, when this is going, when this, you know, judgment or when this establishment of goodness over wickedness will occur. And when you read the story of the exile and the story of the return, you think, you know, is this it? Did we do it? Like, did, have we reached this day where the mountain of the Lord will be established? And that's what kind of, that's what leads us into the passage I really want to talk about, which is Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it reads, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth like leaping calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now this prophecy is interesting because it shows up um, at the end of the Old Testament. So God is about to go quiet for a very long time. And even though Isaiah, in his prophecy about this coming to the day of the Lord... You know, he says it's coming, and then hundred, a couple hundred years later, you have Malachi says it's coming. There's coming a day. It hasn't come yet. So um, I think to really understand what this prophecy means and what it looks like for us, 
I think we really need to sit down and we really need to think about and, you know, dissect this passage to really look at this coming of the day of the Lord. Um, and I, I think the first thing it's worth noticing is that the day of the Lord is coming burning like an oven. Um, the first thing that immediately popped into my mind is burning like an oven. I thought about um, the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his golden image and Daniel's friends, right? So what is the decree? You know, if you don't bow down to this image, I'm going to throw you into my fiery oven. Um, so the time comes when, you know, all the instruments are played in a cacophony of noise and everyone in the kingdom bows to this image. But who doesn't bow? Who doesn't bow? It's these Hebrew, you know, servant boys. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's very displeased. He's very angry. His wrath burns against them. And the time of their judgment comes. And he says, make my oven seven times hotter. And it becomes so hot, this oven, that when they open the door to, to, to bring judgment upon these Hebrew boys, it kills the servants who are opening up the door. And they cast these Hebrews into this burning, burning oven. And what do we learn in that moment? That God's judgment is stronger than the king's judgment. The king Nebuchadnezzar, he styled himself king of kings over all the earth. And God's judgment was more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar's. And this idea of this burning is a particularly interesting one to me because it's almost like God's wrath is this flaming fire that he holds back and that he's refraining from letting lash out and consume and destroy. He's holding it back. But he says a day is coming when he's no longer going to hold it back. And I mean, think about what is the fire consuming? Um, I think, uh, I don't know if any of y'all have really used an old timey like oven. Um, you know, nowadays it's just kind of and our oven's working. Um, I haven't actually used a wood-burning stove, but I have used a wood-burning water boil, water boiler. And so, you know, what do you put in the water boiler or the, the, the oven? You put sticks, you put wood, you put, you know, paper maybe for trying to get it light lit. You don't put, like, glass. You're not going to put pieces of metal in there. You're not going to put, like, rocks. Um, so why do, you put, why do you put what you put in there? You put it in there because you're trying to have – that's what's consumable, that's what can be burned up. So um, what feeds God's anger? The two things that are listed here are the arrogant and the evildoer. These two attributes seem to have a, um, you know, it's almost like a kindling effect. Like if you pour, um, you know, lighter fluid on fire, is what's going to happen. And it's the, this, the, these two characteristics that God consumes that makes God's anger burn hot. And, I, and, I, and you can sit here and you can think about it, but I think one of the things with the arrogant is they don't recognize, they don't accept their position before God. They think, you know, either they think they're better than God or they maybe think they're equal with God. Or it's like, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a guy, you know, so it's like, you know, God's way up there, but, you know, I'm not really that bad either. So that's kind of this attitude of this arrogant. They don't recognize where they stand before God. And God doesn't tolerate people who aren't humble. God doesn't tolerate people who don't see their position before him the way that they need to see their position. And this evildoer is kind of a similar, in a similar vein. Evildoers are people who disrespect God's ordinances. They disrespect God's laws. They, um, instead of doing the right thing, 
instead of humbling themselves and obeying, instead they do what they want to do. They, in fact, it's almost like this, when I think of an evildoer, I think of people that go out of their way to do wrong. They go out of their way to commit crimes, to harm other people. And it's against these individuals um, that God's fire burns. And how brightly does it burn? Um, how hot does it burn? Um, it says that neither branch nor root will be left over. And I mean, you know, uh, you think about, uh, you know, a tree or whatever, and the tree catches fire, you know, how much that fire consumes the tree. And I think it's interesting because that stands in stark contrast to, you know, God's people. So, um, I mean, think about in, um, in John when um, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So here's an image of a branch of branches that have gone out from the vine. And today in this very room, we have people that are still branches coming off of that vine. So we find this kind of contrast between those who are evil, those who are wicked, their branches and their roots are going to be completely burned up. They're going to be completely consumed. Um, whereas the branches of Christ, the branches of God, those which come off of, you know, these divine ordinances. I mean, we're literally 2,000 years later, and the vine is still blooming, it's still growing, it's still, you know, uh, leafing. It's um, it's very stark, very stark contrast. And um, this kind of leads us then, this concept of, the, you know, the righteous surviving and the wicked, into our next verse. Um I think it's interesting that there is a day coming in for the wicked, but the sun is going to rise on the righteous. So, I mean, day coming and sun rising, you know, these are kind of two of the, you know, this is two different ways to say the same thing. Um, but when the sun rises, it's rising not on the wicked, not on the destroyed, not on the evildoer, not on the arrogant, but rather it's rising on those who fear the name of Jehovah. And it's interesting because it's the son of righteousness. Um, and I think sometimes we forget what does that word righteousness really even mean. Um, it's this idea of uprightness, of obedience to law, of submitting yourself to God's authority. And more, more specifically than that, when you think about God's righteousness, um, which I think is the righteousness of the son of righteousness, um, that's pretty clear. Um, this is this righteousness is you know goodness, pure pure goodness, and when this goodness shines about on the land, it heals those who are good. So in that same day that the evil are destroyed, the righteousness of God will heal those who fear the name of the God. And I think um, it's this net result is that it's you who fear his name. And I think it's um, important that it's you who fear his name. This is like a second person, you know, so the, you know, the, the prophet Malachi here is the first person. He's speaking to the second person who's the second person. Anybody who's reading this and reading it for understanding and reading it with faith and reading it in the fear of the Lord, this is a promise that the son of righteousness will rise on you because you fear God's name. And um, what does it look like when the son of righteousness dawns on you and heals you? It's like calves leaping about from their stalls. I don't know if anyone has ever seen it um, or a video of it. 
but um, it's always, uh, it's, it's, uh, it warms my heart, makes me smile. It's um, after a long and cold and bitter winter, these you know, little baby cows have been locked away in stalls, have been locked away in the barn. And, you know, the barn's not even that, like, it's not like the barn is warm and comfortable either. Like, no farmer in their right mind pays to have a farm that's, or have a barn that's like 70, you know, seven, 75 degrees in the, in the winter and, you know, 60 degrees in the summer. No farmer in the right mind does that. So it's cold in the barn. It's cold outside. You know, you're not getting fresh food. You're getting, you know, food that's been, you know, kind of preserved so that you can survive for the winter. And then suddenly the sun of righteousness, the warmth of spring comes and you get to go outside for the first time in like several months. And the cows, um, whenever you watch, I highly encourage you to watch a video of a cow leaping from the stall. They're just so excited. It's like they can't even control their bodies. They're just jumping up and down, and they're just, you know, waving their head back and forth, just taking in all that fresh, warm air. The grass is green. The sun is shining. And they're feeling the warmth of the sun on their skin for the first time in several months. And I mean, I can't tell you the last time that I went about skipping for joy. Um, I, I mean, it's not something, it's, that's a very rare experience, I think, in our lives. We don't, you know, we just don't do that. Um, so imagine now this joy of the Son of Righteousness rising and warming you and causing you to be so happy, to be so overjoyed that you just leap and skip about. And, um, it's interesting to me, too, this relationship then between the righteous who are leaping and are skipping about and are filled with joy and happiness and warmth of the sun. Where do they stand? Where do they leap? Where do they step on and trample while they're leaping about? They're leaping, they're trampling underfoot the ashes of the wicked. And I mean, that's maybe not something that we you know we're very comfortable with, this idea of um, when the wicked are judged, they're burned into oblivion so that we can dance on their ashes. Um, but it, this is very il- illustrative of the superior position of the righteous over the wicked. And I think um, one of the reasons why the wicked are trampled underfoot is because um, this is the day when God acts. When God acts, what does it look like? I mean, I think one of the most, um, one of the most, um, you know, clear examples of God acting is like the Exodus. He turned all their water into into blood. He killed all their animals. He, you know, filled their houses with gnats and frogs. And then he, you know, had a hail and fire down upon them. And then he killed all their firstborn children. And this was like, I mean, this was over the top, at least maybe, maybe in our minds, but this was a very um, pointed effort on God's part to show when I am angry, when my time comes to act, I'm going to act dramatically and I'm going to save those who, um, who are mine. So did any of those, you know, some of those bad things kind of happened in parallel, like, you know, next to Israel, but the worst of the worst, the great judgment of God did not happened to Israel and what do they get to do they got to leave you know the country full of you know covered in gold and silver and like take it all and get out of here so we see um that this is kind of you know an example of what it looks like when God acts but I guess the question then at least in everyone's mind who is reading Malachi in the Old Testament is um you know why hasn't this day come when will this day come 
Well, um, it's my opinion that this day, this single day, kind of, you know, there's different manifestations of it. Um, there's different ways in which we see the day of the Lord acting. Um, I think, you know, there's a reason why we call today the Lord's day. This is the day of the Lord. So today doesn't necessarily look like that. We're not leaping about for joy. We're not, you know, dancing on the ashes of our enemies. Um, but, but does this mean that today, Sunday, is the final day of the Lord? Well, I mean, maybe not even like, that's not even like the smallest, uh, I guess. Today's not even like the smallest uh manifestation the smallest fulfillment of this idea i think it it shows up in several places in several times i mean it happens in the scriptures it happens today um but i think an example from the scriptures is consider um if you're familiar with the story of jehu what happened when when the man jehu visited the house of omri and ahab i mean this is the this is the idea of the lord's judgment visiting and a wicked people and what did jehu do Jehu slaughtered them in battle. He went to Samaria and slaughtered some more people. Um, some of Ahab's friends came to see Ahab to hear about the battle. So Jehu kills them. He kills prophets that were in Dan and Bethel. He um, declares a feast to Baal so that he can get all the prophets of Baal in one place. And then he kills them all because, you know, he's like, I'm bringing judgment from Jehovah on all of you. And he, he slaughters, you know, uh, Jezebel. He slaughters Ahab's children, Ahab's cousins, Ahab's friends. Jehu brought the day of Jehovah upon the house of Omri and upon the house of Ahab. But then the next verse, kind of after all this is, but Jehu did not please the Lord. So did Jehu's visiting of the house of Omri bring about the son of righteousness with healing in its wings? Were people in the kingdom of Israel leaping about like calves with joy because the day of the Lord had finally visited them? I think the obvious and the clear answer is no. Um, Jehu was just as evil as Ahab. He was just as evil as Omri. He was just as evil as Jeroboam. So what about today? I mean, I think uh, this is kind of, you know, a low, this is kind of a low hanging fruit. But, you know, we think about you know, out in the Middle East, when um, under President Obama's presidency, when, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs were able to kill Osama bin Laden, did that all of a sudden bring in a son of righteousness and a period of, of joy and peace and prosperity in the Middle East? Well, no, because otherwise we wouldn't have had to kill another Islamic leader as a country to, um, you know, we just did it last week. We just killed another Islamic leader. So has this brought in the son of righteousness in the Middle East again, in, this, in Syria, and in, quite the opposite. So I think we're, it's clear it's, you know, that these political judgments, even if these are judgments of God, I'm not going to weigh in on if they're judgments of God on Osama bin Laden or um, this other guy. The, but um, it is clear that for Ahab and Omri's case, it was a judgment of God. But these are the days of the Lord visiting these people, but it doesn't seem to have the net result on the righteous as one would expect um, based on these prophecies. So then I guess, you know, in our minds, where is our most, where, where are we naturally going to go as Christians when we hear this term, the day of the Lord, the day when God will come and visit us? Um, we think about the final judgment. This is kind of perhaps the most obvious example of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, I mean, actually, let's go ahead and turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. 
there's a, there's a very good reason why when we hear about fire burning up the wicked, we think about the day of judgment. It comes from Second Peter, this chapter, uh, chapter 3, beginning of verse 8, it reads, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be um, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening for the coming of God, in which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I think it's also clear, um, you know, this, of course, captures the essence of the burning nature of God. And then I, I think that, um, you know, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, um, I'll just read that real quick. It reads, that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead, and the night will be there no more. They will need no light or lamp uh, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. So we see that the wicked will be burned in that final day, and in the final day, we will enjoy the sun of God's righteousness, more specifically, the light of his throne and of the Lamb. And, uh, and there's also a sense in which, um, I did not write the verse for this down, but the church is going to be judging the wicked. I believe that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Um, so with these images in mind of this great and final coming of the day of the Lord, which we have not experienced yet, does that mean that somehow all of our ancestors, especially more specifically our ancestors in the faith who've gone on before us, who fought the good fight and are reigning with God on high, did these individuals somehow miss the day of the Lord? Well, I don't think that that is necessarily the case. Um, I think there's kind of a medium fulfillment between um, you know, these, this kind of national, personal, family example that I gave as the minimum fulfillment and the maximum fulfillment, of course, being the final coming of the day of the Lord. I think there is a fulfillment of the day of the Lord, which you and me, we face every single day. Whenever we come face to face with God and with the Lord and with Jesus, there is indeed a moment of judgment. When we face God, when we face Jesus, Will we be found arrogant? Will we be found guilty of evil doing? Or will we find healing in the wings of God? And I think that this is a lifelong journey. This is a lifelong example. Every single time we come into contact with Christ, we come into contact with the Lord, we have to find that we will either be indicted for evil or we will be healed by God's favor. And because of this grace, because of Jesus' sacrifice, 
Um, we are enabled to always find healing. We are enabled to always find forgiveness. We are enabled to always enjoy the warmth of God's blessing. We're enabled to live triumphantly. Um, and I think that that is something that we may maybe sometimes forget. We are enabled to live um, triumphantly. And we're no longer burdened by the winter time of sin. We're no longer trapped in the stall waiting for the springtime. Rather, the opposite has occurred. The spring is upon us. The sun is upon us. The warmth of God's grace is upon us. And in that same way, the same concept, we are able to trample underfoot wickedness and sin and trespass and iniquity. How do we do that? Um, I think one of the big ways is we expose evil. You know, uh, one way in which we expose evil is, of course, you know, we call it out. We say, that's not just, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not God, that's not what this is all about. But we also expose evil just by living our lives. I think, you know, people should be able to see your life and recognize that the sun of righteousness has risen upon your life and has healed you and has made you different um, from those who are living in arrogance and those who are living in evil doing. And I think because of that, you trample evil by converting souls, by saving souls. Um, what's, you know, what's the best way to, you know, end sin, sadness, sickness, and, you know, suffering is to convert and save people who are full of sin, full of sadness, full of hurt, and full of um, tragedy. And I think um, that this is done um, in the same, this is what Christ did. This is what Christ was about. Um, the first prophecy we have about Jesus is that he's going to trample on the head of the serpent. He's going to trample evil. And how did Jesus Christ in, in his life trample evil? He trampled evil by living a life of gentleness, a life of peace, and a life of self-sacrifice. So as we're kind of wrapping up, I think we need to recognize that the same warmth of the sun that warms the righteousness is a fire that burns the wicked. Um, so this then is um, my charge to you that remember the son of righteousness has already risen in your heart and that is working to heal you with its warmth. Remember that you live a life triumphant over the pain of this world and that your example is to trample out evil in the same way that Jesus did. We'll now stand and sing.